Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Two tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified yes for me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We asked people, how kind, honest, nice, and good are people today? And then what about at various points in the past, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the year in which you were 20, the year in which you were born? And over and over again, people tell us, people are less good today than they used to be. They're less kind, they're less nice, less honest, they're less ethical, they're less moral. They feel like some switch has been flipped in society, something's gone wrong, and we need to fix it. We need to turn things around. But in this case, that negative trend that people perceive, it isn't there. And so whatever you would do to turn it around isn't going to do anything because it didn't do anything in the first place. It's like turning on the sprinkler system in a building that's not on fire. You're you're just going to make everybody wet, (laughs) and you're not going to help anything. That's Adam Mastroianni. He's a social psychologist who's fascinated by how many things people get wrong about the people around them. Like how most of us are so certain that people used to be much kinder than they are now. Or how most of us don't know how to end a conversation. He's also found that being smarter doesn't make you happier. And if all that isn't interesting enough, he also happens to be a professional improviser. This is going to be great to talk with you because... I love when I talk to people who do more than one thing, and you've got a whole, <laughs> whole basket full of things you do. You're a yeah. social psychologist, a blogger or teacher, and yeah. a professional improviser. Yeah. So let's start with the social psychology part. You did a very interesting study to find out if people thought things were better in the past or worse in the past. Tell me, about, tell me a little how that goes. So we asked people— um, how kind, honest, nice, and good are people today? And then what about at various points in the past, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the year in which you were 20, the year in which you were born? And we also looked at uh, studies that other people had done, asking these questions to people all over the world and for and all the way going back to 1949. And over and over again, people tell us people are less good today than they used to be. They're less kind. They're less nice, less honest. They're less ethical. They're less moral. Overall morality has declined. They believe this in every single country where they've been asked the question. And they think it's driven both by individuals getting worse over time. So the same person is worse today than they were 15 years ago. But also we lost good people and we gained bad people. So there's also like a generational effect. So are they mad mainly at young people or what? It's both. So they both think that the young people that we have today aren't as good as the old people that we lost. But they also think that everybody is worse today than they were 15 years ago. Even, you know, the people who were there 15 years ago and are still there today, they think those people are also worse. Um, So this isn't just like a kids these days phenomenon. This is like an everybody these days phenomenon. Uh, 
You remind me right this minute of a quote I came across a few years ago of a Greek, an ancient Greek, who said the same thing. Things are rotten now. <laughs> yeah, you could find these going back a long time. In, in the paper we wrote, we have a quote from uh, Livy in ancient Rome, you know, saying uh, things have all gone to hell, basically. Uh, the people aren't what they used to be. And, you know, we don't have survey data going back thousands of years, but you can certainly find people saying these same things throughout all of history, which also suggests that maybe they aren't all saying these things because they've been right, but because this is actually what it feels like to be alive. Now, from what I hear from many people, especially people in politics, we are going through a period now where there's more hate directed toward people you don't agree with. Than before we didn't we not we not only disagree we I just heard about a survey yesterday where fifty percent of each party thinks the other party is not just wrong but an existential threat to the nation. So are they wrong to think that things are not any better than they were before, but maybe a little yeah. worse? Well, I think there's two possibilities there. One could be that, that that they're right on this in this case that there is more animosity in that part of society. But I think the more likely possibility is actually what has happened is parties have sorted themselves such that everyone you dislike is now in the same room. And so it used to be like, I didn't like this person and I didn't like that person, but they didn't necessarily share the same political party. That wasn't the thing that bound them together. But now things have aligned such that uh, everyone that I dislike happens to be on the other side of the aisle. And maybe parties have organized themselves in this way because they've figured out, or at least they believe, that this is a good way of getting people to vote for them, uh, is to distance themselves from the other side and to get you to vote for me because I'm not the other guy. It's an interesting subject that you've studied here, and I wonder what conclusions you draw from it. Is it holding us back from something as a species or as a society? Is there something we should do to think in a more positive way? What can we draw from it? Yeah. So, so I mean, one important thing that we find is that the, uh, there's pretty good evidence against what people believe here, that they, they think that people are less good than they used to be. So we look at all these survey measures um, where people are asked things like, were you treated with respect all day yesterday? And if it's true that people are less good today than they were 20 years ago, you should see fewer people saying yes today than they were before. You should see a steady decrease in the percentage of people who say they were treated with respect all day yesterday or a million other questions that, that we, we studied. And instead, we see these flat lines um, that these don't change over time. And I think what we should take away from that is that it's so easy to feel like things are getting worse. Um but it's actually a very difficult question to answer whether they are or not. I mean, it took us five years even to have a halfway decent answer. And in this case, the answer seems to be things are actually the same on all these measures. And so uh, often the way people feel when, when they when they feel like things are getting worse, they feel like some switch has been flipped in society. Something's gone wrong and we need to fix it. We need to turn things around. But in this case, that negative trend that people perceive, it isn't there. And so whatever you would do to turn it around isn't going to do anything because it didn't do anything in the first place. It's like turning on the sprinkler system in a building that's not on fire. You're, you're just going to make everybody wet <laughs> and you're not going to help anything. And in an extreme situation, that's the way despots exactly. take over is to convince you that it's time to pull the, the danger switch. Exactly. Yes. Things things have gone to hell. Just put me in charge and give me unlimited power and I will turn them around. And we've seen uh, uh, aspiring leaders um, make that 
claim, I mean, going back to ancient Rome, um, mm. I, I did a little re- research on that. I mean, Augustus was making th- this claim. The Medicis, uh, too, were laying claim to, you know, things used to be great, um, and now we're going to make them great again. And that also, of course, has some uh, recent reverberations as well. But it's it's not a new tactic. It's one of the oldest in the book. Uh, just put me in charge and I'll make everything right again. So in that regard, your research into this turns out to be extremely fruitful if enough people can become aware of it. I certainly hope so. Go out every night on your rooftop and start yelling. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope that people are a little more skeptical when someone tries to make this claim that, uh, that you know, things are bad now, they used to be good, and what we really have to do is change everything to get it back to that good part. Um that uh, that everything that's new in society has made us worse, and we need to get rid of it. We need to change it. We need to blow it all up um, because it it has you know uh, it has burned down the Garden of Eden. Um, when in fact, I, th- I think you go back there. There wasn't a garden. It never felt like there was. You can't find anyone anywhere in history going. Things are really good right now, and I really everyone's just really yeah. nice to each other. Things. It's so simple and wonderful. Our leaders tell the truth. Our neighbors say hello. Um, you go back and they're like, our our leaders are evil and mean, our, uh, our neighbors are devils. Um, and that just turns out that, like, that's what it feels like to, to be alive. So it seems that the cure for all of this is to be smarter and then we'll <laughs> all be happier. But you've disproved that too. Yeah. So is is there any correlation between being happier the higher your IQ is? There's not much. Um, so occasionally they uh, you can find in a study a very small positive correlation, but uh, but in general, it's pretty close to zero, um, which is really surprising because if you think about intelligence as your ability to solve problems, then if you have more ability to solve problems, shouldn't you have fewer problems? Like, shouldn't you have a better life? And we find that people don't, that uh, that your score on, IQ ca- on an IQ test doesn't tell you that much on how you're going to score when uh, you report how happy you are. And I think that's because the way that we think about intelligence and talk about it is very narrow. We think about it as your ability basically to answer these multiple choice IQ tests or your ability to program a computer or your ability to, to win a game of chess. All of which are, are actually useful skills and, and they do uh, predict how well you'll do on other things. But they're a really tiny slice of life. Like life is not a multiple choice test. Um, when uh, when you have to decide how to raise a family or uh, how to do well in your job, it's not like someone gives you A, B, C, and D. Uh, you have to come up with those yourself. You have to filter information. You have to make sense uh, of a bunch of things that make no sense. You have to solve what I call poorly defined problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that your ability to solve those problems is maybe unrelated to your ability to solve well-defined problems, which are problems where there's a definite uh, answer. Uh, we all agree on what that answer is. You can turn these into multiple choice questions. And I think about my grandmother, uh, who I lost in, in December, as someone who was terrific at answering the poorly defined questions of life. You know, she raised six kids. You know, she lived through uh, World War II. Um, she uh, she found a wonderful partner in, in my grandfather. Like, all of these things... Like this wasn't a test that she was given, uh, except the test was life, right? Uh, she could what she couldn't do was figure out how to how to work her TV remote, like this very well defined <laughs> problem. Um, 
And like these skills turn out to be different skills that the kind of person who's really good at working the TV remote uh, is not the same kind of person who's going to be really good at knowing how to raise six children um, in, you know, in a changing world. It seems in order to live a good life, a happy life, you need to be able to not just rely on the IQ, but also something that's like improvisation, where you take what you don't expect and cope with it, deal with it, add to it, make it your own. Yes. Which sounds like I've got a psychological insight into why you do improv. (laughs) I also just really like it when people laugh and clap. Uh, It just feels really nice. (laughs) <laughs> it does. It's one of the great uh, pleasures. <laughs> you, you've you studied what people find humorous, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, that was my uh, undergrad thesis. What did you come up with? Because I'm, I'm, I always love when I can ask somebody who, who's funny for a living what he or she thinks is funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think what's very funny is the idea that we could possibly scientifically understand humor <laughs> having tried to do it myself, yes. uh, uh, I found that like, wait, this isn't actually the best way of trying to answer the question that I wanted to ask. I mean, what I did was um, I really wanted to know how the presence of other people affects how funny you think something is. Uh, I don't really think I have a great answer to that question. I've ran some studies where it, it turned out people gave lower ratings to jokes when they uh, thought that someone else was listening to them at the same time. Um, well, what does that mean? How did but, that work? So basically I, I told, uh, this was all people taking this study online and I told some of them, like someone's taking this study at the same time as you. Uh, and it looks like there's another person there. And in some cases you actually see the ratings that they give. Uh-huh. Um, and what I found the most evidence for was that actually when you see other people that other people don't like jokes, that makes you not like them. When you see them like jokes, it doesn't necessarily make you like them. And I think this is kind of borne out in the world when, like, one person folding their arms and going, that's not funny, is <laughs> enough to kill the vibe. But one person laughing often isn't enough to create the vibe. You need a little bit more than that. You know, there's a thing, or at least there used to be a thing on Broadway, where producers of comedies would hire people who were good laughers to sit in the audience during the show and yeah. laugh at the jokes. And that, that yeah. would encourage other people to think they were watching something funny. And TV networks. <laughs> the, the original laugh track. TV, yeah, yeah. With the laugh track, which is so insulting that, that, yeah. you, that they think that you're so dumb you need a prompt when to find something funny. <laughs> but, they, but they continue to use it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there is something to it that uh, the people are looking to other people for the cue of like, how do I interpret this? Um and often the person they're looking most toward is the performer. So doing improv, um, often you'll find that like, if you want people to laugh, you have to take yourself seriously first. You can't apologize to the audience. If they think that you don't think something you did was funny, they certainly aren't going to think it's funny. Uh, you know, that's so interesting that my father was in burlesque when I was born mm-hmm. and he worked with all the great comics. And one of the few pieces of advice he gave me was, if you're doing something funny, know it's funny. Yeah. In terms of comedy, that's true. In terms of acting in a comedy, being a comic is different from acting in a comedic thing. Yeah. Where when you're acting, if you know it's funny and you project the knowledge that it's funny, you're liable to kill all the laughs. Yeah. You have to let them decide it's funny. But not when you're doing stand-up or 
comedy improv, which is a completely different thing from acting in a play. Yeah, I mainly do improv. I've done some stand-up as well. And one reason I don't do it much anymore is it felt to me like the the most presumptuous form of the performing arts because the, the premise of stand-up comedy is I have thought of things that are so funny that you should sit there and listen quietly to me say them. And it can only succeed if if we sort of ignore that fact uh, that like we kind of just pretend like, oh, you happen to be sitting there. I happen to be standing here. Here's some things I just happen to think. Um, yeah, rather than like I paced back and forth in front of a mirror and I perfected this this word choice in order to make you laugh. I know that that's what I think that's I think you've just described why I find comics who have created a character that's a little more naive, a little less I'm going to smash you over the head with this sledgehammer of a joke kind of delivery. I find them more appealing and funnier. I laugh at them more. Yeah. I think it's how improv succeeds, too, that the premise there is, I mean, look, we're just making all this up in front of you. Like, we don't promise anything here. Yeah. Um, like, we're we're building the plane as, as we're flying it. Um, and I think it, it can hit these moments of uh, discovery where the audience can see um, that you didn't know this was going to happen. Um and I think the best stand-ups create that moment mm. uh, or they make you believe that that moment has, ha- has happened. In improv, it's really happening. That like we managed to put wings on this plane midair. Uh, <laughs> and it's a magic trick that you, were, you know, we might not be able to do it tomorrow night. And that's why it mattered that you were here right now. Like that's why you were watching this live rather than on your screens at home, that you had to be here to see it. Uh, and, you know, and tomorrow we're going to crash into, in, <laughs> we're going to crash into Toledo. Um, but tonight we, we, we made it. You know, we started talking about how that's an approach to life as well as to performing on the stage. Has doing improv changed your life in any way? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in all ways, uh, both practically. I mean, uh, I'm getting married next week and like the like half of the people speaking are people that I, you know, giving toasts or whatever, people that I met doing improv that uh, it, it has sort of that, that kind of band of brothers thing where, I mean, we're not. We're not shooting or getting shot at, but being up in front of an audience is as close as you can get in peacetime uh, to being <laughs> under fire. Uh, but also, it's completely structured the way that I think um, and the way that that I uh, generate scientific ideas. That uh, what you get trained to do when you learn how to do improv is to follow the thing that excites you the most, and it's remarkable how that how that that should come naturally and yet we spend our whole lives building up reasons why we don't do that and excuses for not doing it or, and reasons why like i i want to do this thing but i can't do this thing in improv whatever your first urge is is probably the best one um and uh and really what you're trying to do is is like create this experience on stage that is better for people than whatever they would have watched on Netflix at home and so you're taking seriously like like making something worthwhile and so too, when I'm you know in the room talking to my collaborators or thinking about scientific ideas, um, I want to go with the thing that like captures my attention the same way that something funny in an improv scene captures my attention. That like there's something, there's just this this feeling that something's there. It's it's pure intuition. It's it, you can't really write it down, but it's the single most important part of the scientific process. And I think one that that often people don't talk about. That like the the most important thing you do as a scientist is choose this idea to pursue over that idea. Everything else is downstream of that. All the the data collection, all of the the methods, um, it all uh, is secondary to what do you spend your time doing. 
And so you got to get really good at picking what you spend your time doing. Uh, and I think you you do a little bit slowly, more slowly, what you do in an improv scene, which is pick the thing that feels the richest and the best uh, and toss everything else aside. The, that, that's another big, big influence that it's had on me. When we come back from our break, I explore with Adam Mastroianni how his experience with improv helps him with his day job, teaching negotiation skills at Columbia Business School. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Adam Mastroianni. I was curious about one particular form of improv that he often performs. The name of one of your companies was Harold? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I've been on different Harold teams. Is that doing The Harold? Yes, yes. I've heard about that for all these decades, but I never saw it done. What's The Harold? How do you do The Harold? <laughs> it's uh it's one of the original forms of long form improv comedy and the fact i think it only exists because it is the original because i don't think it's actually that great of a form but uh but it, it is a um a structure of scenes and ideas so basically you get a suggestion from the audience you do some kind of opening that expands on that suggestion so if people give you the word lightning bolt you need some kind of thing that you do with your team that that adds more to that idea. And so sometimes people will do monologues. Sometimes um, they'll do some sound and motion thing. They, they can look really weird, these openings that people do. But the point is to, to put a little flesh on the idea so you're not just working with a word. Then, and this is getting really into the weeds, you do three different scenes, each based on some interpretation of the suggestion in the opening. Then you do a group scene that kind of cl cleanses the palette. Then each of those first three scenes come back in some way. See, it's complicated. This is like, it's totally opposite <laughs> to the idea of improv, which is like, do whatever comes to mind. Like, no, this format is like, do whatever comes to mind. However, make sure that scene 2C is a time jump from scene 1C, where we should see the same characters, but later in time, and the stakes should be increased. So I, you at every improv theater, you will see them do this. Well, the, actually, there's a there's a good rationale for that, and along the lines of Viola Spolin's work, yep. theater games, um, and the rationale I think is that if you put your mind 
your conscious mind to work on on a a rule that you have to follow, it opens up the intuitive part. Yes. And you have a little more access to it. Yeah. I think that's the basic idea behind yes. it. Yes. But you can get clogged up anyway. Exactly. So I think there there is an optimal amount of rules. And then beyond that, now what we're doing is uh, we're, we're really focusing on trying to make sure we follow all the rules, forgetting that what we were really trying to do was have fun. Um, and so I like forms of improv that, uh, that have some rules, but are where, way paired back. So my favorite form is called the Armando, which is just, you have a monologist, um, give, like talk, give, uh, give some story based on a suggestion from the audience. And then you do scenes that are inspired by the things that they said. And then they come back and do another monologue inspired by the scenes that you did. Then you do more scenes and then you do another monologue and you, you do that for as long as the audience will stay and watch you. Yeah, I've done that. That's fun. Has improv changed the way you teach? For instance, you teach negotiation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you teach it in a way that other people don't teach it because of <laughs> improv? Yes. Um, so much of teaching a class on negotiation is putting people into weird, stressful situations because people in, in my class, they do negotiations with their classmates. And then you bring them all back and you try to make sense of the things that happen to people. And people do weird stuff in these negotiations. They, they sometimes freak <laughs> like, out. Like what? Um, they'll, they'll invent um, a nonprofit that they have uh, and go, I'll pay you from my nonprofit to like make this problem go away. And then they'll come back and I'll go, okay, I appreciate your improv spirit here, but um, we, you can't invent nonprofits anymore. Um uh, or sometimes they'll get really mad at one another. Uh, you know, they'll lie to each other, um, and they'll come back and, and they'll go, "I can't do a deal with this guy. He's totally unreasonable." Um, and what I have to do as the instructor is make all of this okay, make the make smooth over the weird stuff, like draw out what people can learn from it, um, and and all of this is on the fly. Um, and so, really, being in an improv scene where. I've done everything. You know, I've been a talking toilet. I've been on the walls of Jericho. Like, I've been killed a million different ways. Just, like, nothing phases me anymore. So when someone comes back uh, and, and, is, and is like, this person blew up my deal and they called me a name, like, I, uh, I don't freak out. I know exactly what to do uh, and how to make it okay. Um, part of that, in, in improv, this is justification, right? This is um, doing something crazy in a scene and then explaining why. Uh, why you did uh, that. And this is often the much more richer part of the scene that I don't want to just see people do random stuff. I want someone with some consistent theory of how the world works, even if that theory is wrong. Um, and so th this is, I think, is one of my strengths as an improviser is, is, is I'm a big justifier. And so too, when I'm teaching, uh, I'm a justifier as well. Like, I understand why you did that. Here's why it makes total sense. Here's also why you should never do it again. Uh, and here's what you can learn from it. <laughs> well, so in the course of this, I assume you're pointing them toward key things to remember in negotiation because negotiation yeah. is a, an important form of communication. Can you tell me a couple of the things that make negotiations work? Yeah. So my 92nd negotiation class, uh, this is a little excerpt from one of the classes that, that I do, uh, is basically... When, whenever you're negotiating anything with someone else, there's only three kinds of issues that you could be negotiating. And one is the, the thing you think all issues are the first one, which is what are called distributive issues, where we both want it and we both want it the same amount. 
uh, I'm selling you a used car. You want to pay as little as you can for it. I want to get you to pay as much as as, as you can for it. Um, people think that every issue in a negotiation is that kind, that a pure tug-of-war issue. But there are actually two other kinds of issues. One is what we call an integrative issue where we want different things, but you want it more or I want it more. So say we're negotiating a job interview and you don't really care exactly when I start. I, I might care a lot. And so if you give me what I want on my start date, maybe you really care where I relocate to. And maybe I don't care that much about that. So if I can give you exactly what you want on that issue, you can give me exactly what I want on another issue. And this is how we grow the pie in, in business jargon. Um, and then there's a third kind of issue that people sometimes don't even believe, believe exists, which is a compatible issue where we both want the same thing. And so, I mean, going back to a job negotiation, sometimes uh, both people want you or maybe you both want to move to a certain city and your employer does too. But if you assume that you're always going to be at odds with everything, then you treat everything like it's a tug of war. And sometimes you don't actually get what you want because you didn't believe that the other person could possibly want the same thing. So that, that's the that's what a 90 second negotiation lesson that there are only three kinds of issues in a negotiation. And the, your first task is to figure out which ones are you dealing with? Is it distributive? Is it compatible? Is it integrative? You're making me think of some of the most basic forms of communication. And I guess the most common one is conversation. Your research on conversation is so interesting because you found that people don't know when to end the conversation. Yeah. How did you go about finding that? So I, I wrote a paper called Do Conversations End When People Want Them To? And the way uh, that we answered this question is um, we brought people into the lab. Uh, this was all before the pandemic. And we told them, talk as long as you want. Um, and whenever you're ready, move on to the next part of the study. Just come get me. Um, and the next part of the study was uh, we asked people, was there any point at which you wanted that conversation to end? And if so, when was it? Like estimate in the nearest minute when that was. And if not, how much longer did you want to go? Tell us how many more minutes you think you, you might have wanted to, to talk. And what we find is that even though we tell people talk as long as you want, um, almost no one when they come out of the room says I talked as long as I wanted to. Um, <laughs> a, <laughs> a majority of people say I talked longer than I wanted to, but uh, the rest of them say I wanted to keep going. Very few people say uh, it, it was spot on. And we find this happens for two reasons. One is um, people don't want to speak for the same amount of time. Um, and when you both want different things, it's impossible for you both to get what you want because it's mutually exclusive. And the second problem is that people are really bad at knowing when the other person wants to leave. So we ask people to estimate, when do you think the other person felt ready for the conversation to end? And they're off by about half of the length of their conversation. So if we talk for 20 minutes, they're off by 10 minutes when they guess when the other person wanted to go. Uh, and that is also the difference between uh, how long people talked and how long they wanted to talk. It was about half of the length of their conversation. Um, and this is both true in the lab, um, but this is also true when we surveyed people about the last conversation that they had. So in the lab, people are talking to new people, but when we survey them, they're uh, they're telling us about people that talking to people that they know really well. So you know, friends and family members, loved ones, partners, people that they live with. And there too, we find that almost no one says this conversation ended when I wanted it to end. So it's not just the laboratory; it also having happens in the living room as well. You know, I would my reaction to that would be that the problem is that they're not paying attention to cues coming off mm. the face of the other person. But I notice it's a big problem in Zoom calls where you're yeah. really focused on the other person's face. 
you ought to be able to read cues as they come up, and yet you feel often this is going on longer than it needs to. We just ran out of steam about five minutes ago. And nobody yeah. wants to be rude enough to say, I'm going now. Yeah. <laughs> I had enough of this. Yeah. Is it not reading cues? Is it something else? What, what's going on? Well, so not reading cues is half of, of the problem. But I think actually maybe the bigger problem is not giving cues. So we think that we are very transparent with the things that we want. But in fact... When you want a conversation to end, you might do things like, ah, break eye contact, like move around a little bit more, which from the other side are all very ambiguous. That could be, those could be things you do when you're thinking or when you have to pee or it's not clear that that means that you want to stop. Um, And I think part of it is the fear that I'm not reading the cues of the other person or they look like they're interested, but maybe they're not. They're just pretending. And so we bring a lot of anxiety to conversations that make sense because they're an important part of our lives or how we connect with, with one another. Uh, but I think actually the, the, the solution is, is to care a little less, um, and to listen harder. Uh, and if you don't end exactly when you want, when you want to, that's, that's okay. Uh, because we find that people really enjoy these conversations. Um, even when they say it didn't end perfectly on time, they enjoy them a little less when they go on too long, but actually being left wanting more was just as good as being left, uh, getting exactly what you wanted. So I think this is also something that people worry about too much. And, you know, with my love of improv, I can remember a conversation that just went nowhere, sitting next to someone I'd never met before. And I asked a question that I really don't think is a good question to ask. What do you do? And she said, I study the history of cloth. (laughs) And there was this long pause. (laughs) I I couldn't say, great. I thought, who would study the history of cloth? And here she is. She's the one. And I didn't ask her about it. I didn't say, tell her, no, that's interesting. What, what is the, what's going on there? It just turned me deaf and blind. So it can, it can happen to a lot of people. Am I right that you have to let the person in? Yeah. And that if you expect that the other person is interesting and has cool ideas, then it makes it more likely that they actually do. And so something like discovering that someone studies the history of cloth can feel like a dead end. But if you trust that, like, there's some reason this person does this. They're not insane. So, like, what is it? What is it about the cloth? Like, I want to know, do you like how it feels? Like, are you a burlap gal or more of a, like, a terry cloth kind of fella? Like, what, what got you into this? What you're describing is I didn't bring into play what I usually bring into play in everything I do, which is curiosity. If yeah. you're curious yeah. about the other person... No matter what they say they do or no matter what they come up with as a conversation starter, it's worth listening to because you want to know where it came from. Who who are you really? What's really going on in there? Yeah. I mean, what we're doing when we when we do that is creating what what I think of as, as a conversational doorknob or a conversational affordance. So there's another piece I, I, I wrote about how good conversations have lots of doorknobs, which is just many opportunities for the other person to kind of launch themselves forward. And one way to do that is to be curious about them and and uh, to say something that allows them to say the next thing. Um And so one way that people often think to do this is by asking questions, and that can be one way, uh, but often questions actually aren't as good at doing this as people think that they are. Like, a question like, so, how many cousins do you have? Like, isn't, (laughs) 
<laughs> like it doesn't doesn't get us very far because if the answer is seven, then you go, all right, oh, well, it's okay. been great talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but a question like, why do you do that? Like, what got you into that? Uh, yeah. Like, what what is it? Um, then that opens them up a little bit. And then maybe their response opens you up a little bit. Uh, and, you know, and now we're off to the races. So now I have a really big question. How do we end this conversation? <laughs> um, maybe if we have some like technical difficulties and like you get disconnected, and so no one has to be well, uh, no one has to be at fault. <laughs> well, what I usually do um, is say we've run out of time. Uh huh. <laughs> which which is always true. So um, there's, there's always so little time. But yeah, we end every conversation with seven quick questions. Okay. R- roughly to do with communication. You okay with them? You, you're ready for anything, right? Uh, yeah, oh. you could ask me to be a toilet, I'd do <laughs> first, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, man. Uh, I really wish I understood um, how uh, comparisons come to mind. And what I mean by that is whenever you judge something as good or bad, you mean what you really mean it is better or worse than some other thing. And the other thing that you compare it to uh, determines entirely whether that thing is good or bad. Um, and I think this is the, the key to how the mind works. And I don't think we really understand it. And that is what I would like to understand. I like the sound of that. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> I think you first uh, spend 30 years becoming their friend um, <laughs> and then go, you know, that thing that you said 30 years ago, I don't really know about that. Uh I think maybe anything else is is pretty hopeless. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't listen to anyone I just met who's like your version of the world is wrong. I'd go, I mean, buy a guy dinner first and then have a lifelong friendship. <laughs> All right, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, um, <laughs> it's we- it's weird. That the the first thing that comes to mind is I uh, I, I I went to undergrad uh, at Princeton and I used to give tours there. And one of the people on one of my tours asked me, are there opportunities for moral development at Princeton University? And and I just thought, what? Like, do you mean, like, do people, like, tie people down to, like, trolley, like, train tracks? It is like, do you want to change the track and, like, kill these five people or this one? Like, (laughs) what do you mean moral development? Um, I think it turns out they just meant, are there Christians on campus? And I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) But being asked that question in front of a group of, like, 75 people really... Not a lot of things caught me off guard, but that that one that one that, that I can see how that was strange. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> uh, you say, uh, "Excuse me, I can't help but notice that the room appears to be on fire." Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's better than what's that over there? Yeah, it gives you it gives you a chance to run. Uh, or you could say, I can't help but notice that, that you have, have said some words I, I, that looks kind of fun. I want to try saying some words now and see how that suits me. <laughs> um. That's great. <laughs> I love that. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you never met. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Hmm. I would really want to read of what kind of person uh, I'm sitting next to, as much as I can tell before doing this. Um, I might start by making myself look dumb. Um, uh, that like, hey, I have a stupid question about what's going on. Do you have any idea what's going on right now? <laughs> uh, or um, 
Yeah. It's funny. You said, what do you do is such a, is a bad question. Uh, I like, what do you do with your time? Um, yeah, that's just a little, little different. It, yeah. People are always like, oh, what do you, do you mean like what I, what job do I have? And I'm like, I don't care. This is just an opportunity for you to say something interesting. <laughs> then we're going to go from there. <laughs> okay. Next to last question. What gives you confidence? Mm. Getting on stage hundreds of times and not physically dying, even I like interpersonally dying many times. Um, but realizing that the worst can happen in front of other people and you're still fine. You get up and you do the show the next night. And I think a lot of people are paralyzed by like, what if people think less of me? And the answer is like, yeah, what if? It just turns out nothing changes. It, you don't start bleeding out of your eyes. Like you, uh, your heart keeps beating. And so this psychic pain that you feel from people uh, thinking that you're not that great um, is largely imaginary. And, and in fact, our reactions to it are what often leads us to do the things that make people think that you're not great. Uh-huh. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Hmm. Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert, who um, uh, is a psychologist, and he was my PhD advisor. But I read this book when I was an undergrad, and I just read it for some class. And it's all about how um, we're really bad at predicting the things that make us happy and all the reasons why. And reading that book was like my mind slicing through butter. And then I got an email later uh, that like, hey, Dan Gilbert's lab is looking for research assistants for the summer. And I thought, you can talk to this man? Like, you can go and do this work? Um, so I worked for him as a research assistant. I eventually became uh, his PhD student. I worked with him for five years. Um, he became, you know, a, a very important mentor in my, in my life. So, yeah, reading that book cha- changed a lot for me. That's great. It's, it's really been a wonderful experience talking with you. Thank you so much. That's a great way to end this conversation. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Adam Mastroianni is a postdoctoral research scholar at the management division at Columbia Business School. He publishes a regular blog called Experimental History, and his homepage is adammastroianni.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Maya Shanker. The most unexpected part of my grieving process in losing the ability to play the violin was, was acknowledging that I hadn't just lost the ability to play an instrument, I lost myself in the process. You know, I felt like I was missing a huge piece of my heart. <laughs> I didn't know where it had gone, and I I really struggled to figure out who I was and, and who I could be without the violin. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can resonate, you know, might not have been an instrument, but we all experience loss in our lives. Maya Shanker and how she turned that sense of loss into a PhD in neuroscience, a stint in the White House, and hosting a popular podcast about others navigating change. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, 
please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious.